Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Well, hi there again, and welcome to the ninth episode of the All Things Unity podcast, and part five of a deep dive into a book called A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Oosterhout. We are checking this book out because we are discussing some of the alternative practices and theories to another popular book called Clean Code by Robert C. Martin. We dove into Clean Code as it gives a lot of simple, practical advice for any developer, no matter the level of experience. But since there is some pushback against Clean Code and Uncle Bob, we are also checking out some worthy alternatives. I personally apply the practices and theories from multiple books in a combined manner, so I take the best parts of each and mold it into something I like. And in recent episodes we discussed up to chapter 14 of this book. We have already discussed many things like the tactical and the strategic mind in programming, deep and shallow modules, pulling complexity downwards, defining errors out of existence, Design it twice and choosing names, for example. Go back to these previous episodes if you haven't listened to them. It's all great stuff. In the previous two episodes, we also looked at Professor Oosterhout's opinion about comments. He has a very strong opinion about comments, and he says that without comments, you cannot create abstractions in your code. And interestingly, his notion of a comment is one that can be used for generating documentation. So... In a C-sharp context, these would be the summary comments you put uh, above fields, properties, methods and classes or interfaces, for example. These summary comments can be used to generate documentation with a tool like Doxygen. But more importantly, they show up in your IDE while coding. So you get a little pop-up in your IDE when you are about to write down a method call, for example. And we also made the assumption that when John is talking about comments, he's actually talking about summaries, unless he specifically says something else. And yeah, these comments are indeed very helpful. But we also discussed some of the other types of comments, which I think are not as useful as Professor Hauserhout thinks they are. They are these seemingly random inline or like block comments you might find in the middle of a function. These do not show up in your generation uh, tools for documentation and they also don't show up in your IDE by means of IntelliSense. So you actually need to like read the body of the function to get the comment. But at that point you are already invested in reading the body of the function. So why not just read the code? But yeah, we discussed the excuses developers have not to write comments and how comments should be written to actually be useful. You can listen to this discussion in the previous two episodes, so go back if you haven't. It will give you some more context about the chapters we are about to discuss in this episode. And this episode will cover chapters 15, 16 and 17. And chapter 15 is all about what I would call comment-driven development. In this chapter, Professor Oosterhout talks about the benefits of writing comments before you write the code. This is an interesting practice since it overlaps with some of the benefits of TDD, which I really like, like test-driven development, that is. Um, Chapter 16 is all about modifying existing code. And in this chapter, Professor Outfout will discuss how to keep your comments in sync with the code, yet not so much about what strategies to take to actually change the code. He just says you need to do it with a strategic mind, but we'll talk about this in, a, in this episode. And in the last chapter we will cover in this episode is chapter 17, which is all about consistency. This chapter contains a lot of really valuable information, and Professor Oosterhout talks about the value of consistency and provides us with some tips on how to keep things consistent. But yeah, this is going to be an interesting episode, so let's jump right in. So let's continue with chapter 15, Write Comments First. When I read this title, I really get a test-driven development vibe, but this would be like comment-driven development or something. But, (laughs) however, uh, John makes uh, like a valid case here when he says that many developers put off writing documentation until the end of the development process. And surely, 
is right about this. Many people will put off writing this kind of detailed docs until the end, because, well, we have not implemented it yet. And especially with the types of comments Professor Aushaus one choose to write, like comments describing low-level implementation details, like uh, an index being inclusive or exclusive in the substring example. Um, these kind of functions are extracted from the code while developing. This is a very organic process, and thus you do not know exactly what functions you will end up with. But yeah, the public interface, you might add uh, some summaries before writing an actual implementation. Doing common-driven development fits the same purpose as TDD has. You write the test first to make sure your code is able to pass the test, so you can prove it works, but also that you will have tests in the end. Or you might up you might end up without tests. And comment-driven development does the same for comments instead of tests, I guess. But yeah, let's see what Professor Oosterhout will teach us about writing comments first, shall we? So, he says that if you write comments in the beginning of the process, you are making it part of the design of the code. And I fully agree. John says it will help you produce better documentation and make the process of writing it more enjoyable. And I think I agree again. This also happens with TDD. It's far more fun to write your test first than to make it, uh, and then to make it pass and do some refactorings to, to fit, the, fit the design. Uh, instead of like writing your tests after you wrote the code and trying to retrofit your tests to the code. It's, it, like if you write the code first, it can be really, really difficult to um, do some proper testing. And also to make like a little segue to the previous two episodes, Professor Ousterhout says that good comments provide precision when documenting low-level concepts and provide intuition when they describe high-level concepts. And I think when you uh, comment before you code, you are in a better position to write these comments since you will focus on the why and the what of the function and not on the how since the code has not been written yet. So writing the comments first seems like something very useful to me. But let's continue with the first section of this chapter. And the first section in this chapter is called Delayed Comments Are Bad Comments. And I, <laughs> yes, that sounds like some universal truth, right? Many developers will put off writing the comments with excuses like the code is still changing or I don't have time now or I'll write the comments before uh, like putting my pull requests up for review and they'll all have excuses uh, that say that they will wait with writing comments un like until the code base stabilizes but yeah let's face it many developers just hate writing documentation and will put it off as long as they can and I'm surely guilty of that myself too and John says that there is never a convenient moment to stop developing for some time and fill in the missing comments and it's very easy to rationalize that the best thing for the project is to move on and fix bugs or implement features this sounds so familiar right um, this is the same argument people will have when they have to write tests for existing code. That's one of the reasons why people practice TDD. And if you write the test first, you are sure you have the code tested. And the code is testable. And it's even more fun. And Professor Ousterhout says that if you write comments retroactively, you will end up with bad comments. And it's absolutely not fun to write. And furthermore, Writing comments after the code is complete will deliver bad comments since you have checked out mentally since the code is done and you are eager to move on. You just want to comment uh, you just want to comment as quickly as possible. So you quickly comment everything to add enough so that it looks like respectable. And then next John describes his process of writing comments and it goes as follows. And I think it's nice to include it in the episode, so here we go. So, the first step is for a new class, I start by writing the class interface comment. Two, 
Next, I write interface comments and signatures for most of the uh, important public methods. But I leave the method bodies empty. Three, I iterate a bit over these comments until the basic structure feels about right. At this point, I write declarations and comments for most of the important class instance variables in the class. And finally, I will fill the bodies of the methods, adding implementation comments as needed. And five, while writing method bodies, I usually discover the need for additional methods and instance uh, variables. And for each new method, I write the interface comment before the body of the method. So for instance variables, I fill in the comment at the same time that I write the variable declaration. And this seems pretty reasonable uh, as a practice, right? This is not how I write summaries since I follow a more organic approach to design. I do think a lot about design before I create something, but I'll admit I will extract a lot of functions while writing code, since I like that practice from clean code. But I can write a summary first on a class or interface level and then write the implementation. These comments are a bit more abstract, I guess, so you might as well write them in the beginning. And John also has a very nice quote here, which is, uh, and I quote, when the code is done, the comments are also done. There is never a backlog of unwritten comments, end quote. This highly correlates to TDD, and I like this. So let's continue with the second and most important benefit of writing comments at the beginning, which is that comments are a design tool so they improve the design of the software being built. And again, this sounds like a promotion for TDD, but it's about summaries. And because I can relate it to TDD, I agree with John. Although he also says this, which I simply do not agree with in any shape or form. But John says, and I quote, Comments provide the only way to fully capture abstractions, and good abstractions are fundamental to good software design, end quote. Uh, Comments are definitely not the only way to capture abstractions. And as I said in the previous episode, has he ever considered domain-driven design? And I agree with Professor Oosterhout that nice summaries, especially describing low-level concepts, are important. They improve the system design, and I might even say that low-level summaries are fundamental to design. The substring example with inclusive or exclusive indexes comes to mind here again. When that summary pops up in your IDE while typing, you don't have to check the implementation to see what the indexes mean. So yeah, these are really, really useful. However, high-level summaries should not be fundamental to design. We have far better practices for such things. And as I said this, uh, like a second ago, domain-driven design, for example. But all right, I think I have explained this a couple of times now in the past two or three episodes. So yeah, <clears throat> let's continue with the book. Next, he points out something I find really interesting, and that is that comments can serve as a canary in a coal mine of complexity. John says that if a method or variable requires a long comment, that's a, that's a red flag, and you don't have like a good abstraction. I mean, this sounds so darn familiar again. In TDD, if you need to write a lot of setup and teardown code, just to be able to test something in isolation, your code is probably far too complex, has too many dependencies, and thus means you don't have a good abstraction. So yeah, John is certainly right here, I think. And if you require long summaries to describe things, you may want to spend some time redesigning that code. And if you follow the common-driven development strategy, uh, so write the comments first, redesigning the code will not take much effort since there is no implementation yet. And also, long and complicated comments are a sign that the module is shallow. So the same idea applies to variables. If it takes a long comment to fully describe a variable, it's a red flag that suggests you may not have chosen the right variable composition. And he then ends this section with a red flag, which says, and I quote, the comment that describes a method or variable should be simple and yet complete. If you find it difficult to write such a comment, 
that's an indicator that there may be a problem with the design of the thing you are describing, end quote. And the third and final benefit of writing comments before you write the code is that it makes comments more fun. And again, this also sounds very familiar from a TDD perspective. If you write a test first and then make it pass, you will get this, well, little tiny dopamine hit when the light switches from red to green. This is one of the things about TDD I really enjoy. And it may sound stupid, but it's really true. Um, when you first write a failing test and then make it pass, it just always enjoys me. And John then says that when you write the comments first, uh, they are easier to write. Uh, but also they explain things more easily since you have not considered the implementation yet. And he also says that if you write your comments first, your abstraction will be more stable. That's interesting, right? Uh, he doesn't dive much deeper into this subject, but it sounds really interesting. I guess what he means is that if you write the comments first, uh, keep them simple, you might feel obligated to align your code with the comment and thus keep the abstractions and the code simple as well. Um, but uh, he concludes this chapter with the advice uh, that says, if you have not tried writing comments first, try it and stick with it until you get used to it. I think that's a great idea, which I'm going to pick up in my daily programming regimen. And next up is a chapter about modifying existing code. And from what I can remember, this is very focused on, well, comments, again. John puts a real effort to make it abundantly clear that comments are really important for good software design. I remember thinking differently about this, but ever since we're making these podcast episodes about it, I, I think comments do actually hold value when they are in a supported format for documentation generation purposes and uh, IntelliSense and your IDE. So... Let's dive in and see what Professor Oosterhout tells us about how to modify existing code. And he starts off by restating that software development is an incremental process, and this often includes increments in complexity. A system's design is constantly evolving, and thus it is impossible to conceive the right design right at the beginning of a project. The design of, the, of a mature system is determined more by changes made during the system's evolution than by any initial conception. This is all so true, and exactly why the waterfall method turned out not to be such a good idea and just a very big disaster. For those who don't know, the waterfall methodology is a software development methodology where you work in predefined or uh, predetermined stages or phases like requirements elicitation and analysis, software design, software development, testing, deployment, and last maintenance. So you first gather all the requirements and analysis and do analysis of what needs to be built. Then in the next phase, you create a software design for the entire system. Next, you implement the design and actually write the software and follow that up with the phase of testing. And last, you deploy it and do some maintenance, of course. Um, this process is really out of touch with reality, right? Since the design you made for some system will almost never end up as the actual uh, design of the system in production. In abstract matters, it might be right, but when as <clears throat> but when as the design gets more detailed, you will see you will divert from it. When you implement the actual design, you will find out about things you did not anticipate or things you can simply do better. So you change the design while implementing the software. But yeah, enough about the waterfall method. Software development methodologies are a podcast topic of its own, and we will dive into them in the future because they are important. But yeah, that's not the subject of this episode. So let's continue. And Professor Ausserhout continues chapter 16, modifying existing code, with a section about staying strategic in these mo uh, modifications. In earlier chapters, we discussed the mindsets programmers tend to have while writing software, the tactical and the strategic mind. While in the tactical mindset, we fully focus at the task at hand, trying to implement a feature or fixing a bug as quickly as we can. 
and not thinking about the additional complexity we introduce or anticipating future changes. However, with the strategic mind, we do focus our efforts on anticipating future changes, code reusability, and fighting against incremental complexity. So, tactical programming focuses on getting things working, but strategic programming also includes keeping the design of your game or system maintainable and simple. And John believes that many programmers have a tactical mindset when they have to adapt or extend existing code. He thinks developers just want to make the smallest possible change to implement something, because they might be afraid they break something else and introduce bugs. And I guess he's right. And it's also one of the main themes in the Clean Code book. Uncle Bob always talks about how programmers uh, make such a great mess that they are afraid to change the code. And uh, I'll quote Uncle Bob directly. If you break it, it becomes yours. And (laughs) this sounds so stupid, but it is very true. I bet some of you... uh, Uh, listening have been blamed sometime when you change some existing code which needed to be changed in order to implement some requirement but then you broke the code uh, since it was a horrible mess without any tests and i certainly i have i've been blamed for this in the past and i'll probably run into this in the future as well and sometimes when you start our start or help other develop uh, developers in existing code bases you simply do not know the code well enough or the domain well enough to be 100% sure nothing will break when you change things and yes this is a symptom of dirty code but it still can happen sometimes and um, we do our absolute best to circumvent these kinds of problems by employing the practices we learn from this book, a philosophy of software design, and clean code, for example. But okay, um, let's continue with the book. Um, Professor Ausserhout was explaining that lots of developers are afraid to modify existing code because they are afraid to change things. This leads to developers wanting to make the smallest possible change in order to implement a feature. But this will also lead them to adding uh, lots of minimal changes with some very special purpose cases, dependencies or other forms of complexity. And as a result, the system design gets a bit worse and the problems accumulate with each step in the system's evolution. And this is the perfect example of tactical programming. And it's also the exact opposite of Uncle Bob's Boy Scout rule, which says leave the campground cleaner than you found it. And it translates to, you should always check the code in cleaner than you checked it out. Um, Professor Oosthouts says that if you want to maintain proper and clean software design, you must take a strategic approach when dealing with modifications to an existing system. He then again makes a very bold statement which says, and I quote, Ideally, when you have finished with each change, the system will have the structure it would have had if you had designed it from the start with that change in mind, end quote. Which is so very true, but also very difficult sometimes. And he says you can achieve this by not giving in to the temptation to make an easy fix, but instead think about how you can fit the requirement in the current design, and if it does not fit, how can you adapt the system's design to make it so? And just come up with the best possible alternative. And you should not be afraid to refactor the system to fit in the new requirement. So this way you can align your work with the strategic mindset and take an approach aimed towards investment rather than doing things tactical and quickly. It's okay to take just a bit more time to implement a feature or fix a bug uh, you will because you will end up with a cleaner system. And John then says something that highly correlates to Uncle Bob's Boy Scout rule, which is, if you are not making the system better, you are making it worse. (laughs) And I mean, he's right. The design can go either way, so we do our absolute best uh, to make it better and not worse. But Professor Alsterhout also admits that sometimes taking the quick and dirty road is the best one to take. 
if the cleanest way to fix an issue is to do like three months work of refactoring, but an easy fix can be made in two hours, you are probably better off taking the quick fix and then make your deadline and you know, then start with refactoring the system uh, with that cleaner solution you had in mind. And I've talked about this in previous episodes as well. Sometimes, just to please some manager or another stakeholder who promised something to a client, you hack some feature in. But once it is released, you refactor the code or you just you may even revert the code back to the original state before the release and just start over. This is not very uh, like efficient, I admit, but it's a sad reality sometimes. But then again, these edge cases don't occur often. And Professor Ausserhout then also says something interesting, which I think contrasts with Uncle Bob's advice in clean code. And that is uh, that he thinks that every company should plan and spend a small fraction of time on refactoring and cleanup. And on the other hand, Uncle Bob says you should never ask or put refactoring on a schedule. It's part of your job. This is the way you practice your profession. You are a professional. Remember that. And personally, I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I agree with Uncle Bob that refactoring is part of your job. You do it constantly and never ask for permission for refactoring. But when you find out that some refactoring which should absolutely be done is going to take a lot of time, so like three months or so, you should put it on a schedule since the impact on the code and the planning uh, and the project management is just too large. This way you can battle technical depth and everyone is aware of the issues at hand. So I think both Uncle Bob and Professor Ausserhout have a valid point here. And the next section of the book is about keeping the comments near to the code. Um, I think this is a very good idea. If you start refactoring code and comments start to drift away from the original code, they will become outdated and misleading. Um, these are the comments I will gladly delete from your code base. And it's easy to forget to update comments when you are updating existing code. But with a little discipline, you can keep uh, these comments up to date. And by the way, note that we are talking about summaries here. So if you, um, for example, change the number of arguments of a function, don't forget to update the summary that includes that additional argument as well. And interestingly, the remainder of this chapter is about how to keep comments up to date and not so much about modifying existing code. Here we can see again how much uh, emphasis Professor Ousterhout puts on comments. And he says that, and I quote, the best way to ensure comments get updated is to position them close to the code uh, they describe so developers will see them when they change the code, end quote. This is surely true. Uh, summaries uh, are always close to the thing they describe. Just make sure uh, you are not referencing seemingly random other code in summaries. This will only create confusion. And he then also repeats some very important comments about comments, which is, uh, users should not need to read either code or header files. They should get their information from documentation compiled by tools like Doxygen or Javadoc. In addition, many IDEs will extract and present documentation to users, such as by displaying a method's documentation when the method's name is typed. Given such tools uh, as these, the documentation should be located in the place that is most convenient for the developers to work on the code. So. Yeah, um, this is totally true and it's what I've been ranting about uh, a lot in previous episodes. And excuse me <laughs> for that, by the way. And he also says you should not put all the information about the method in comments that can be used for generating uh, documentation. You should take that comment apart and put the comments near the implementation of the code inside the method. And I'm not a great fan of this, and I think you as a listener might know that by now. But yeah, it's uh, it's this kind of clutter when you like you put all the implementation details inside the summary comment. 
um, there will be far too much inflammation in such comments and they will become very, very large, which will definitely reduce the chance that anyone will ever read the entire damn thing. And he then gives an example on how to comment a function that consists of three phases. He says he would put a comment block at the top of the function that explains there are three phases, and then also add additional details in comments when a new phase is started inside the function. I really don't like this. If a function consists of three phases, extract these functions out, and if necessary, extract the entire function, including the extracted functions for the phases out into a new object. That's what I would do. But what do you think? Would you prefer to take up uh, Professor Oosterhout's advice uh, and make like a massive function with inlined comments? Or would you take up Uncle Bob's advice and extract the phases out into private functions? Uh, and if the class grows too large, uh, extract the, lo the total uh, like out into an entirely new object. Let me know. I'm really curious about your opinions. And next, Professor Oosterhout describes a common mistake while modifying existing code, which is that comments belong in the code, not the commit log. <clears throat> and yeah, I, I've seen this before. Sometimes the commit logs have really detailed information that could have been perfectly been described in a summary above a class, interface or functions. And these logs are not read that much. Maybe during code review or once you need to find a specific commit later in time. And me personally often check the commit logs on like a Monday morning to remind myself what the last couple of things were that were merged into dev or master or whichever branch I worked on. But just remember that if you are really if if there's really important low level implementation details that require documentation, summaries are the way to go in a C sharp context. These will show up in your IDE through intelligence and documentation tooling. And next there's also a short section about avoiding duplication while maintaining comments. Sometimes when extending or maintaining uh, existing code, it is really tempting to simply copy paste code and fiddle it into working for your new requirement. But you also copied the comment, but it's not entirely true anymore. Plus there are two duplicated comments, but they describe the code that is like a bit different. If you do this, also make sure that the updated to update the comments, since it can be very confusing and misleading to keep these duplicated comments in the code. And Uncle Bob talks uh, about this in his clean code book as well. This especially happens when comments or summaries are mandated by management or someone else. People will simply copy paste the code, including the summary, but not change the summary because, well, they already fit the requirement of there must always be a summary above public facing entities. But also don't redocument one module's design decisions in another module. For example, don't put comments before a method call that explains what happens in the call of method. If readers want to know, they should look at the interface comments for that method. And Professor Ausserhout then also says, if documentation is already documented someplace outside of your system, don't repeat that documentation inside your program. Just reference the external documentation, which makes total sense to me. And I, well, I fully agree here. And he next uh, also gives the good advice to check the commit diffs before merging things into developer master. Read the code including your comments and summaries to make sure they still make sense even after your pull request has been accepted and merged. Also, don't forget to remove any commented code and to-do statements. I've talked about these to-do statements that uh, always, yeah, almost always uh, turn into don't-do comments. Just make tickets for to-do comments in the project management software your company uses. This way the to-dos get tracked in uh, in the software and they uh, they can follow like the normal process of software development plus everyone is aware that something still needs to be done in order to complete a specific requirement or feature. 
you know, to-do comments are in the code and maybe your project manager or scrum master or whoever uh, will never see those to-do comments. So they are unaware of these things. And the final thought in this chapter is that higher level comments are easier to maintain. This is because they do not reflect the implementation details and thus remain true for a long time if the domain language and the design overall is correct. And yeah, that's it for this chapter, modifying existing code. I thought it was rather interesting. It's a rather interesting take on modifying code since Professor Ausraut speaks more about comments than anything else. He hasn't spoken much about how to actually modify code what the best practices are, and how do you fight complexity creep. But yeah, he started with a small section uh, in the beginning of the chapter where we talked about how you should always take a strategic mind to modifying code. That's totally true, of course. But let's continue with another chapter since we still have some time left. So next is chapter 17, and it's called Consistency. And Professor Austerhout says it's a powerful tool for reducing the complexity of a system and makes the behavior more obvious. He defines consistency, and I quote, If a system is consistent, it means that similar things are done in similar ways, and dissimilar things are done in different ways, end quote. (laughs) I think that's a very good and, well, very straightforward definition of consistency. He then also says something really interesting and that is, and I'll quote again, um, consistency creates cognitive leverage. Once you have learned something, uh, how something is done in one place, you can use that knowledge to immediately understand other places that use the same approach. If a system is not implemented in a consistent fashion, developers must learn about each situation separately, end quote. And I think This is totally correct, and also such a nice way to formulate it. I mean, consistency creates cognitive leverage. I've never never heard it said like this, but it totally makes sense, um, and you can use that leverage to reduce the cognitive load. Um, Professor Ausserhout then continues by saying that consistency reduces mistakes since developers will be able to program with more intuition and based on uh, recognition of code patterns and algorithms they have seen before. Uh, Just by this small introductory section, I think we will get a good grasp of how awesome the content of this chapter will be. So let's quickly continue with the first section. And... The first section is about a couple of examples on how to apply and create consistency. And Professor Ousterhout starts with the obvious, something we have talked about intensively in in previous episodes, and also was a really important topic in clean code. And that is, of course, naming. Names must be intention-revealing, and consistency will also help greatly with the perception of things. So don't use like terms like game controller, game manager, or game sing- singleton interchangeably. Choose one suffix to rule the ball and in darkness bind them. So <laughs> the, the next form of consistency is coding style, which I think is a really great one to add as well. A common coding style that adheres to standards and guidelines set by the community or a company is a great way to increase the understandability of your game. And also, make sure to hook up your IDE correctly to enforce most of these policies. And in Uncle Bob's Clean Code book, there's also a great chapter about formatting code. He talks a lot about how to properly do horizontal and vertical formatting. He explains concepts like density and openness, which refers to code that's related to other code to be close to each other in a file. So don't spread conditions in if statements over multiple lines, for example. And openness refers to using additional white space or new lines to create separation between things that are separate. So use white spaces between mathematical or logical operators or formulas or conditions and use white spaces between function arguments. 
and use new lines to separate functions and fields, for example. And yeah, luckily our IDEs do a lot of this out of the box already, but sometimes you need to tweak some settings to fit your personal or like company preferences. And the next form of consistency is implementation of interfaces. So if an interface has multiple implementations, this is a form of consistency and it will improve the understandability of your game. Once you understand one implementation of an interface, you will understand other implementations as well. Maybe not the nitty gritty details, but you will understand it in an abstract matter, which is certainly nice. So if you see another implementation of that interface in the code, you will probably find it easy to find out what it does on a high level. And next up are design patterns, which are generally accepted solutions to certain common problems, such as the model view controller pattern or the dreaded singleton you will definitely find in Unity 3D projects. If you use patterns like these in your code, they will be easy to understand, plus you can raise the abstraction level while talking about the implementation. So instead of explaining some difficult setup and uh, dependencies between classes, you can just tell your colleague you have used an observer pattern and move on. Um, just make sure you don't overdo it. Don't use design patterns for everything in your game. You will build a very flexible system this way, but you will also be oh, it will also be overly complicated and over-engineered. And oh, um, then I want to throw in another thing here, and that is that you should not use design pattern names for things that are not related or uh, do not implement the pattern. So for example, don't call your class player singleton when it, when it does not implement the singleton pattern. These names have become such common practice that uh, if you use them, people will have certain expectations about them. They will... Uh, they have become so accustomed to these design pattern names that reading them will instantly create recognition. But if you use them in code that does not implement the actual pattern, that is a great source of confusion. And the last example of consistency is invariance. And an invariant is a property of a variable or structure that is always true. And Professor Ousterhout gives the example that in a data structure that stores lines of text, every line is terminated by a new line character. These kinds of properties will ensure consistency in your game. I think this is particularly interesting. Uh, it's a particularly interesting type of consistency and one I don't often think about myself. But how do we ensure that there is any kind of consistency in your code? Consistency is hard to maintain, especially when many people work on a project over a long time. Sometimes rules and guidelines will be violated unintentionally, for example by newcomers. So next up, Professor Ausraut will give some, give some tips on how to maintain consistency. And the, his first tip is to make sure that conventions, style guides and guidelines are documented somewhere. He proposes to use some kinds of wiki for this and you should encourage people to actually read these docs. Also make sure to keep your rules and style guides timely since they can get out of date. For example, when new programming features uh, like when new programming language features are introduced, the style guides and conventions can change. For example, in Unity 3D, we cannot use records or switch expressions but these are available in the language. And maybe in the future, we are able to use them in Unity 3D, and then we might uh, need to update our guidelines. Or maybe when the ECS finally reaches a somewhat stable state, you might need to update the guidelines to include the ECS. And Austerhout's next tip is to enforce the rules and conventions. And here I totally agree, and I think almost everyone will. Our IDE supports enforcement of rules and conventions out of the box. Even so, when you first open your IDE, there is probably some enforced formatting applied automatically. Try to follow the C-sharp coding conventions here as much as you can, by the way. Uh, I follow the C-sharp conventions 
used in our community but i admit i made some small changes to them like uh, my constant variables are in a screaming snake case uh, format instead of an upper camel case so it's uh, all uppercase with uh, with with uh, underscores in between instead of upper camel case this makes my constants just pop out a little bit more and i've made like in my personal ide i've made comments in my code bright like a bright red color as if these were errors so if the comment is not useful when i think it's outdated or misleading i'll delete that giant red fluorescent comment from my file and i think I've talked about this before, but with JetBrains Rider, you're able to set up like a dedicated Git repository to host these kinds of settings. So I did. And we share this repo among team members and thus we all have the same rules. Um, you can also just export these rules into a, a zip uh, file and, and import them manually. Um, I suppose other IDEs support this feature as well. I'm not sure, but it's really straightforward and it's really easy. And the best part of that, when you do this, uh, the entire team uses the same rules for formatting and code style. Plus, if the uh, rules need changing, you just edit the settings in the Git repo and everyone's settings are updated. It's such a nice collaborative feature. You can also extend uh, like your CI CD pipeline with linters and other kinds of checking and formatting tooling. That's a great idea as well, by the way. The last tip by Professor Ousterhout to help with consistency is to, well, do what others do. You should check out and study files to find out what the rules and conventions are. I think uh, in an open source projects, uh, this can be a really good idea uh, and, and a really good way to study the coding conventions and styles. But uh, in a team inside a company, you really want these rules to be enforced. But this also goes a little bit further. Uh, for example, you might need to implement some feature and you can check out how similar features are implemented and do it exactly the same way. A simple example would be if uh, in all your existing code, some abstract factory pattern is used for object construction, you should not implement your your own feature with a decorator pattern. You should take the approach that is most obvious, uh, which is to align your code with the existing one and implement it in an abstract factory. Now, is this always the case? Well, no, I don't think so. Especially when you're working in a legacy code base. You might intentionally divert from previous design decisions because you want to improve the structure of the code and make it more testable, for example. Um, but you still need to be careful. Professor Oosterhout says that you should not just change existing conventions. Having a quote-unquote better idea is not su sufficient as an excuse to introduce inconsistencies. And he's totally right. I fell into this trap uh, myself before, where I would introduce some new way of doing things when refactoring. Uh, but did this just did not really align with the current state of the code. Um, Professor Oosterhout then also explains you can take consistency too far. When you become overzealous about consistency and try to enforce dissimilar things into the same approach, such as by using the same variable name for things that are really different or using an existing design pattern for a task that doesn't fit that pattern, you'll actually create complexity and confusion. And I guess he's right, especially with the part about design patterns. I think we will encounter, encounter this more than once in our careers, when some developers sprinkle design patterns all over the codebase for no apparent logical reason, reason uh, other than he just wanted to use as much designs, design patterns as possible. This makes the code uh, overly complicated uh, and most importantly, it probably won't fit your domain. In your domain, there is no singleton visitor or observer. This is programming, like programming jargon, not domain language. Um, yeah, um, 
concluding arguments for this chapter are that consistency is part of the strategic mind and an investment mindset. Take just a bit more work to ensure consistency. Work to decide on conventions, work to create automated checkers, work to look for similar situations to mimic in new code, and work uh, in code reviews to educate the team. Um, the return on this investment is that your code will be more obvious. Developers will be able to understand the code's behavior more quickly and accurately. And this will allow them to work faster with fewer bugs. And this is all very true. And I think, uh, well, I certainly think Uncle Bob would agree with everything in this chapter. This is not uh, like a particularly controversial advice in here. I think the advice in this chapter was mostly, well, common sense. But I suppose if you don't know about how to enforce conventions, you will run into inconsistency problems. So set up your IDE settings and share them among your team and also make sure to document design decisions somewhere so other developers uh, can align their code with the existing design and not work against it. But yeah, all right, that's enough for this episode. This was a blast and we have uh, covered uh, so much really nice information here. We checked out chapter 15 which was basically all about comment-driven development. So write your comments first and then write your code. This forces you to keep the comments succinct and it's more fun. And you will, have, uh, you will actually end up with comments when your code is done. Uh, you don't have to add them like retrospectively. Um, then we also checked out chapter 16 which was all about modifying existing code. Well, this was more about maintaining comments than code, I think. There was such an emphasis on comments in this chapter that I think uh, a bit more attention to actually maintaining code would have been very nice. But luckily, we are looking uh, at this book as an uh, alternative to clean code. And in clean code, there are many great practices on how to maintain code, so I think we should combine the advice uh, from this book, A Philosophy of Software Design, and clean code to come up with the best way to modify existing code ourselves. And last, we checked out chapter 17, which was all about consistency. I think this chapter included a lot of very valuable information for any game or software professional. Without consistency, we are nowhere and we will awaken the spaghetti monster. I really had to throw this reference in here. The pastafism has been in the background for such a long time. But <laughs> consistency will really improve our understanding uh, of the code and like our work overall. So create and share your IDE settings. But what do you think about all this? Please let me know. You can contact me by email on podcast at allthingsunity.com. Um, we have three more chapters to go. So I think we need one more episode about this book. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. And by the way, don't forget to leave me a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And if I'm not available on your favorite, let me know and I'll try to get it on there as well. So thank you for listening. Uh, see you next time. And remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.